a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. I'm sat here in my office thinking, yay, it's February. We've made it through January. And how was yours? Did you stick to your maybe new plans and ideas you had for how to do things? Or did you feel like hibernating a little bit like me? I think in all honesty, I'm still in hibernation mode a little bit. I still haven't quite surfaced to my usual energy levels. But that's okay, because I do feel it's quite nice to live with the seasons as well. And um, when I look outside my window and everything is a little bit dreary and grey and rainy, and yeah, I'm waiting for all of the flowers in my garden to shoot out with little sprouts and flower blossoms and all of that. And I guess living in tune with nature for me has been for the last few years a reassuring thing in telling me that I don't always have to be and feel the exact same throughout every day of the year. It's okay to feel differently and that my energy levels will fluctuate just like spring, summer, autumn and winter and one doesn't rush towards the other. The earth kind of spins lazily in its orbit, right? Everything has its has its flow when we look out and you can't rush it. Like one little blade of grass doesn't really grow much faster than its neighbor. And so I'm almost allowing for myself to lazily spin within all of my energy levels. And yeah, that kind of feels quite natural and quite good at the moment. I have a lovely podcast guest for you today, Dr. Anisha Patel, and she shares really, really amazing stuff from her professional experience. She's a GP, works in Surrey. But her personal story, which she also shares with us, is something that we can all learn a lot from. Anisha has been diagnosed with bowel cancer. But really, what was so interesting for me when I was listening to her is things take its time. A bit like you can't rush spring along, like it's going to come when it when it comes. But With Anisha's story as well, it sort of highlights that even if you have lots of medical knowledge and in Anisha's situation, her husband is even a consultant gastroenterologist and he's one of the regional leads for the UK's bowel cancer screening program. Even then, with all of that expertise, things take a while to unfold. So if you're sitting at home listening to me thinking, gosh, I'm still in this menopause malarkey, I was diagnosed with cancer whenever that was, and surely by now I should have been able to tackle my hot flushes, my insomnia, your joint ache, or whatever other symptoms you might have. Then listen to 
Anisha and me chat today because things take time. Everything takes its time to unfold, to unravel. It needs a little bit of time for it to make sense in our brains. And whatever medical knowledge you have, it takes a while for you to truly feel what is going on so that you then can communicate that with your medical team, perhaps. Anisha also goes on to talk about histamine intolerance, which is definitely some of the more complicated things when we talk about menopause, especially after cancer. And one of the things that is probably really understudied as well. Anisha will explain what histamine intolerance meant to her, how she discovered it, and what she was able to do about it. And I'm glad she shares a little bit of that with us in the podcast. And I'll put some of the links to references she made into the show notes um, in case this is something you wanted to explore and address and maybe just tap your sort of feelers into a little bit more. Now, with that being said, I'm really, really excited to welcome Dr. Anisha Patel onto the show. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on today. I was just introducing you in my little blurb before every podcast guest. And I said, I'm really excited to talk to you because you've got lots of exciting things going on and you're really passionate about how to live a life post-cancer or once we've had a cancer diagnosis and how to move on. And I think that's really exciting. And I want to tap into that a little bit today. Definitely, definitely. Just I don't want to just survive. We want to thrive as well. And, you know, at the beginning, just surviving is cool. That's what I did. I was just about keeping my head above water. But then later on, you can make those steps as well. So tell me a little bit about you professionally. What do you do and who are you? Okay, so I'm Anisha. I'm a GP. I work in West Sussex. I work three days a week um, in general practice. I specialize in women's health, menopause, uh, fertility and um, sort of family planning. And then I also specialize in chest or respiratory medicine. Um, and the other two days a week, I, that's where my, I guess, work post-cancer has come. So any charity work that I do, whether it be as a volunteer, as a medic, as a media volunteer, obviously all the social media stuff, more recently writing a book, working on TV, radio, this has all come post-cancer. So now I have kind of a full-time job in some ways, but I just have two days doing that in my own flexibility. And so you were diagnosed with cancer when? I was diagnosed back in September 2018, ironically, with bowel cancer, more specifically rectal cancer. And I say ironically, because my husband is a consultant, and he specializes in bowel cancer and diagnosing and treating early bowel cancer. So I just guess he can't really write that stuff. But um, so I was diagnosed, I went on to have a major bowel surgery, I did have a stoma temporarily. And then I went on to have three months of quite grueling chemotherapy. And then I was deemed in remission or cancer free in February, end of February 2019. So I did, I went through treatment quite quickly at my own request, I think. And I think as a doctor, there was that sort of knowledge of just trying to get to the other end to try and get out and, and, and I guess start recovery. And touch wood, I had my last scan in October this year, and it's now four years of being cancer free. So I'm really, really pleased. Congratulations. Every day is a milestone every every week. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What's it like to be a doctor, a GP, to be married to someone who specializes in exactly the type of cancer 
you end up getting? Is that weird? Is that crazy? I mean, I think at the beginning when I was diagnosed, I think I just went into shutdown. And I think it was even more of an excuse to go into shutdown because I had my husband advocating for me, which was totally fine, by the way. I just... I just felt like he knew where to go. He knew where I wanted to have treatment. And we did have that extra knowledge to, to allow us to do that. So it is slightly different. It's her, the feeling of loss of control for me was the biggest issue, though, I had through the whole process. Because for me, constantly, I felt like I was on the wrong side of the consulting table. I shouldn't be the one on the patient yeah. trolley. I should be walking with the patient. I should be the doctor that's at the end of the bed. And I think that the whole time for both of us was quite, quite unnerving. But equally, you know, what it's done for us as health professionals, um, it's taught us so much that a textbook, you know, going to med school would never teach us both. And, you know, my husband interestingly said to me the other day, every time I break a diagnosis of bowel cancer to someone after he's done a colonoscopy, he said, my heart, you know, I can feel the family around them and what that ripple effect is now. Because yeah. it is, it's about the ripple effect. It's not just the patient, it's the friends, it's the family, it's work, layer upon layer of, of, of people that are affected by the chaos that cancer kind of strikes. Yeah. And for anyone listening at home, everyone has been diagnosed with cancer, but we're talking to people with any cancer diagnosis at any stage of the cancer diagnosis. And I'm sure it'll bring up so many different memories for different people of what that meant to them. What symptoms did you have, if I may ask, because I know very little about bowel cancer. So what sort of spiked your uh, intuition of thinking, I'll have that checked out? Yeah, so initially I I had really bad tiredness, but then I was a young mum's kids, children were six and seven, working, burning the candle at both ends. I had blood tests that were normal at the time. And then I started to get what I, in my own words, described as IBS symptoms, irritable bowel syndromes. I got a little bit more constipated. I feel I couldn't empty my bowel properly. And then because I was constipated, I thought it was upsetting some piles that I'd had in childbirth. I was getting a bit of blood on the tissue. Um, And as time went on, this got worse and more significant. And I confided in my husband sort of a few months later and I went to my GP and, and indeed we did treat for constipation and piles. But a month later, when I was in holiday in Italy, my symptoms got horrendous, like much more severe. My my bowels were explosive. I was running to the toilet in the middle of the night. I was going several times a day and I was losing weight in retrospect as well. So, you know, a change in bowel habit for more than three weeks, either more constipated, you know, diarrhea, blood in the stool, weight loss, fatigue. I had a couple of bouts of really severe tummy pain where I nearly called an ambulance. And that was all the tumour in the bottom end of my bowel blocking you know, the passage, which was giving me the tummy ache, which was making me constipated because poo couldn't go past the obstruction, basically. And so, you know, with rectal cancer, so that's the sort of capacitor at the end of our bowel, which stores poo before we actually go for a poo, you tend to get thinner poos because actually you're squeezing past an obstruction. So actually, I noticed my poo changed visibly. It was like thin ribbons. And there was that constant feeling of pressure or pain in my rectum, in my bum, And that was the tumour again, pressing. So, yeah, there are a variety of of symptoms like that. And I would say to anyone, if those symptoms, you've got them for more than three weeks, please do go and see your GP. Mm. It's so interesting because I speak to so many amazing doctors and scientists on the podcast, and many of them are patients themselves. And 
what strikes me so much with all of their stories, they're just normal human beings. They don't get it much better. They don't get their diagnosis much quicker because they've got all the knowledge. And sometimes as a patient who isn't a medic, we often look back and think, oh, should I have acted quicker? Should I have done something about before? But by speaking to so many of you, I think, no, there is a natural process, right? We often put things down to life. Like I speak to so many women who are in natural perimenopause. They talk about changes of bowels all the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is true. And I think, you know, the same same applies to me. There was a period of time where I thought those symptoms could be something else. But in July, when I realized that actually this isn't just normal pile blood, right? This is something else that I thought actually that the pennies dropped now. You know, we I didn't ever think it was cancer, even though, you know, my husband tells me all the time about how many people are diagnosed young. And I was 39 when I was diagnosed. You know, stereotypically, it was thought to be a cancer of men, overweight, Caucasian, you know, um, people who ate a lot of meat, drank, weren't fit. Uh, over 60 and here I was not fitting the stereotype at all yeah so I, th- I think that was the thing you know I thought I'd had inflammatory bowel disease if I'm totally honest and I think my husband probably thought the same too so I think it was a shock and I think it's a shock when it's you or your relative you know we we have to compartmentalize as, as doctors so we sort of say okay that patient is young they're 30 they've got cancer but we we actually put them in a box themselves because otherwise we take on all of that, you know, all of the, the suffering of every one of our patients. So you almost think, not that you're invincible, but that that didn't that won't happen to me. Of course. Um, so yeah. And so what did your treatment include? So I had a, what's called an anterior resection. So I had um, half of my rectum cut out and a a part of my bowel a foot of bowel which has left me with bowel dysfunction I don't go to the toilet like normal whatever everyone's normal is as I do before and that has given me very much a new normal and something that I found very difficult to live with initially and I've done a lot of researching and digging with my husband to find answers because there weren't many answers you know and the surgeons cut your bowel out they got rid of your cancer that's kind of job done and actually, this is why I'm so passionate about talking about the aftermath, because even as a doctor, I struggled to find the answers to help myself. And what I want to do now, and one of the things that I often try and do is I find the answers often by my own trial and error and research. And if there's evidence based, even better, that's the icing on the cake. And then share those nuggets with people because that will help them, hopefully, or at least give them options to try. You know, I think many of us will say with cancer, with side effects that we live with post-treatment, we all want to um, try and manage those symptoms and live life as best as we can. But sometimes it's not as straightforward. So I had the bowel surgery. I had the stoma um, to allow my bowel to heal. And then I actually chose to have my stoma reversed prior to starting chemo um, a mere three weeks after my major bowel surgery. So I had oxaliplatin and capecitabine chemotherapy. And I've got side effects, you know, nerve damage in my hands and feet from that. And obviously there were the mental health scars that, that came with it, the anxiety, the PTSD, the claustrophobia. And I ended up with a pretty severe sciatica, which, which can often happen in those with bowel cancer as well. So, you know, you, you have this cacophony afterwards and you try and make the best of it afterwards. And, and, and you know, it, it was hard. I'm not going to lie. There were dark, dark days at times. Mm. And, you know, I hear you because 
so often we talk about the physical symptoms of cancer or cancer treatment. And with most people I speak to, the mental and emotional impact is probably much bigger at the same time. And also as you move on for years and years to come post-diagnosis, and they're much harder to manage and they're quiet and they're silent and they're within you and in your own emotions and in your own yeah. head. And, and they can be ever so difficult to manage and no one can see them and really difficult isn't it that element of anxiety like you say distress the PTSD all of that and people see your smiling face on the outside because at the end of the day you know when I'd finished treatment I wanted to fit in with everyone else I wanted to be in my old life but I was in this new normal life and so I put the face on and I remember my therapist saying to me, you know, if you paint that picture that you're fine on the outside and you always, you know, put your makeup on and you put your best clothes on and you go out and you're ready to, you know, look like you're ready to seize the day. No, how's anyone going to know what's going on on the inside? And, and, and actually that taught me a lot about the communication. And that's when I used my Instagram and as, and my blog at doctors get cancer too, as my catharsis as my way from diagnosis to let, me out because often yeah. I felt like I, I couldn't say today or people just didn't want to hear it again and mm. it's even with the perimenopause and we talk about this you know it's those symptoms that you sort of slowly come up upon you and you don't realize they're creeping upon you and you carry on life because you know you're well I'll bat though that, that night sweat away and I'm not sleeping properly and I'm going to get a few more migraines and I just want to I just want to get on with my life and oh, there's an excuse for that. That's because, you know, I've just had more since treatment and that's because, and we're all, we're all, we all do that. We all sort of, you know, just try and bat everything away. And we've got to say what we actually feel to look after ourselves. Yeah, because it's actually not about what we think other people want to hear. It's about thinking, what do I want to share? What's important for me to share? Regardless whether people are ready to hear it, they're fed up of hearing it. It's thinking what do I need to share that is of benefit to me and that conversation and that relationship did your cancer treatment have anything to do with menopause does it create so, a menopause for you or surgery or how does it work with bowel cancer so with regard to bowel cancer and menopause so when I had my consultation with my oncologist I was asked do I have family and do I want any more children and I knew then where I where we were going with this Many people who had the stage of cancer I did, I had stage three um, rectal cancer, would, would receive, the majority would receive radiotherapy and chemotherapy before surgery. And the radiotherapy, because it's pelvic, would put you into menopause and probably cause infertility. I was spared that because, but it was a, it was a bit of a gamble. My surgeon said, I'll open you up if I feel I can get all of it without the need to shrink it down with radiotherapy and chemotherapy, then I will. But if I can't, I'll close you back up and you're going to have to go back. And I took that risk because they said to me, you're young. We don't want you to have to go through this if you don't need to. But with the chemotherapy, she did also say you may go into um, a temporary menopause or maybe something longer later on. And with regard to this, you know, a temporary menopause caused by chemotherapy is usually up to two years is what we say. And then if your periods return within that time, then it's temporary. If your periods stop or if you become perimenopausal after that, you can say it's probably due to due to treatment. 
Um, and what chemo and radiotherapy do is they sort of they, they damage the ovaries, essentially. And so they stop the follicles and the eggs sort of maturing. And they also increase the rate at which your egg sort of levels drop. So there's two twofold there. And, you know, it's really difficult to quantify who's going to be get menopause first with treatment, who's not. It's really difficult for us to quantify that. It depends on your age. So obviously, the older you are, the more likely you will go be tipped over in, into menopause or perimenopause. What your existing sort of ovarian reserve is, and that differs for everyone. The type of chemo you have, um, the radiotherapy you have. So as I say, if it's pelvic, you're more likely to experience perimenopause and menopause. And the number of cycles you have. So obviously, we know the doses are cumulative. And what I would say, and what I've heard a lot with any cancer and menopause, is that actually seek treatment early. And it's a really, I think one of the things that we don't do well is offer, again, we're talking about aftermath again, that service of that aftermath. You know, I'd forgotten about menopause with the 500 things that I got going on. And here I am, menopause and perimenopause specialist in a GP practice setting. But you're dealing with so much and people, people just accept it. But actually what I would say is, if you are experiencing a cacophony symptoms or any symptoms of menopause and the balance app's really good for that so trying to track what you're having then go and see your gp or speak to your specialist about it because bowel cancer is not hormone dependent so you are safe to have hrt and actually particularly if you're young so if you're premature so under the age of 45 or under 40 where you know you get primary ovarian failure and, and and you and you go through these things due to treatment you must 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 go and ask for help and treatment because the long-term consequences in terms of your cardiovascular and osteoporosis risk I don't need to tell you are there as well so you know you're dealing with cancer number one let alone then having to deal with menopause peripet menopause and all the symptoms let alone having to potentially deal with infertility and the huge huge you know catastrophic that effect that has on people and then you're also dealing with you know everything else just dealing with the cancer just general shit after on top of that I mean with what you're saying and I totally hear you you're giving the onus back to the patient Mm -hmm. and in a way I in a lot of the work I have been doing over the last few years in the menopause and cancer space I want to stop that because I feel as a patient once we are in the headlights of it all you know we're a rabbit with like headlights on and we're so shocked it's very difficult to know what's what is it mild night sweats because I've just had surgery I've had chemo is it perimenopause menopause I feel like we need to take a few steps back and have the medical system really educate us you know I speak to hundreds of young people who go through all the treatments you have just mentioned and none of their medical team is really talking to them about menopause and it drives me insane. And I'd love to know from you and maybe your husband, at what point does someone like your husband say to their patients, and by the way, this surgery or this treatment or the oncologist is going to put you into perimenopause or menopause. or And so it'll be so interesting to sort of have a little mini revolution in how our healthcare professionals educate us. And for me personally, I'm sure I was told chemotherapy might put you into a state of menopause, but I wasn't listening perhaps or receptive. So when my period stopped, I just thought, I said to my mom, it's a side effect of chemotherapy. I had no idea what happened to my ovaries and whether my periods would come back or not, because at that point I wasn't receptive enough because all I wanted to do is survive. 
And so at one point in my care plan follow-up, it would have been so useful for someone to say, actually, Danny, have your periods come back? Where are we at with it? Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. And the reason I'm putting it back in the patient's court at the minute is because it's not happening. I know. It's, <laughs> it's I so know. frustrating. And, and, and I totally and I totally back you up 100%. And as a GP, when my post-cancer patients come back to me if they're young, obviously I have that conversation. But that's, this is a very... I have in a very different situation and obviously I can educate my colleagues and we can try and put education out there. But, you know, I was given that information before, but none of my follow ups. I don't think I was asked the question about menopause and perimenopause, which then made me put it to the back of my head as well. And then when I actually ex- realized and I've only started HRT recently, but when the penny finally dropped, it dropped with a bang because actually I've been experiencing this since treatment four years ago, four years ago. And no one has asked me, I joined all the dots and I kept thinking, oh, I didn't have radiotherapy. So, you know, my ovaries will be okay. And I didn't have that much chemo. Um, Mm. And, you know, there was always that sort of thing. And there's lots of reasons I could have the symptoms like, you know, I see it in general practice now, you know, ladies have been suffering for months and years because we we always you know a lot of us put our health sometimes second or don't really join the dots because menopause symptoms can be so vast yeah mm-hmm. um and for me mine started with a, a rash and itching which I can talk about later but I later discovered it was histamine intolerance due to the perimenopause and then an increase in migraines a feeling of just not feeling like me. And that's what some of my patients say to me all the time, the moods going up and down, you know, the the loss of libido, the aches and pains, the general just feeling blur. And yeah, I'm not like that. You know, I'm a very positive person usually. And I have a marina coil in, so I didn't really know whether I'm having periods or not. I've had a marina coil through this whole process, so I wouldn't even know whether I have periods or not now. Yeah, um, and and it and for me, the, the real problem I have with this is that I speak to so many women every single week who their personality and their whole life is altered because of menopause after cancer. Yes. And so I understand you cannot move on and suddenly become this empowered patient who really works works at an amazing action plan of getting back into your strength and getting back into motivating yourself to exercise and eat well, if we have all these symptoms stopping us in our tracks. And it is a basic sort of basic thing to make sure that menopause isn't stopping us in our tracks too much so that we can move on and become the survivor we deserve to be, right? Otherwise, we've got another thing stopping us from surviving well. I know we want to survive longer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We want to thrive, I don't, you know, and, you know, one of the things that was really interesting. So I like running. I love exercise, but I noticed my performance in running reduced, you know, and I noticed that when I was exercising, I don't really sweat much, but I literally drench, drench myself. And it was these subtle things. So it wasn't a classic hot flush, but it was definite, you know, sweats. And I had a couple of night sweats and you know, I'm on estrogel now and I've got a marina and I don't take a high dose, but it is enough to have made a change. The only problem is, is that when you have histamine intolerance, HRT can make your symptoms worse. And I, I can talk about that if you wanted me to. Let's now. talk about that. What? So histamine intolerance and 
menopause. Yeah. Talk to me about that. It's not a very common symptom. It's not like you hear about night sweats, insomnia, hot flushes, histamine intolerance. Sounds complicated. So what happened for you? What happened <laughs> for you? I'm going to decomplicate it. Right. So it is a really poorly understood condition. And I'll be completely honest. I was a bit like, does it, is it a thing? Is it? And then I've obviously done a lot of reading about it and it's rarely acknowledged yet. We think about one in a hundred people probably have it, but just wow. aren't diagnosed. Um, what is and- histamine intolerance before we move on? Yeah, so it's basically histamine is a chemical in the body that we need, okay, that helps our brain work, that helps our guts. Um, You might have seen, you know, in allergic reactions, sometimes you get, you know, the big wheels, and that's a histamine response. So it works in allergy as well. Histamine intolerance is not an allergy, first and foremost. It's our inability, so the body's inability to break down the natural histamine we produce, okay? And that's due to a reduction in the production of an enzyme called DAO, which is diamine oxidase. And that enzyme reduces, which means gradually you're getting this buildup of histamine in the body that's just building up and building up, nowhere to go. And so the symptoms start gradually as well. So it's not suddenly you've got it. And they think this reduction in enzyme production is A, either due to gut health, which we obviously talk about a lot, or to do with genetics. Now, bearing in mind, I am really meticulous with my gut health as much as I can be. I do like splurges. I do like to go and have a drink, but I, you know, I know what I'm putting in my gut and I, it's, it's, you know, if anything, I'm probably, you know, overeating all the fermented things, but that is how I realized that I had this condition because histamine, we also ingest and there are foods that contain histamine And there are foods that release histamine in the body. And I'll talk a bit more about those in a minute. What I did realize, and now in retrospect, we talk about genetics, is that my mum used to get some of the symptoms I'll tell you about. So she also had this during the perimenopause. And it's literally all these things are coming together now that I'm sort of puzzling together. So histamine intolerance can develop. It might be temporary in some people. It might be permanent in others. And as I say, it's to do with the foods we ingest. So I can give you some examples of foods. So fermented foods, all the foods that I would love to feed my guts for good health, sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, kefir, really, really high histamine levels. Beer, alcohol, fermented things, high histamine we know that the riper the fruit or veg, the higher the histamine. So a green tomato will have low histamine, a really red sort of almost soft one will have high histamine. We know that if I ate a lovely fresh piece of chicken today, that has low histamine. But if I ate the leftovers three days later, that has high histamine. And it's really interesting. So I was drinking spinach and berry smoothies probably four to five times a week. So a good wadge of spinach raw I've been doing this for years even before cancer this is not something new and I realized and I was really really suffering with this rash it was all over my body it was in my head and I saw a dermatologist and I was put on prescribed antihistamines three times the dose that's usually given I had skin biopsies I went this went on for about six seven months couldn't find an answer and then I flew out on holiday to Dubai to my brother's And I knew heat made it worse as well, because histamine comes out more when you're hot, when you itch. 
I went to Dubai and it got better. So I thought maybe it's the heat, you know, sun. Sun's really good for skin conditions usually. Maybe it's the reduction in stress because it started after the London Marathon. And I thought, well, that's a physical stress, isn't it, that you put your body under? But no, it was diet because I stopped having my daily spinach smoothies. I didn't have all my kombucha, my kefir, all my fermented products, you know, and we were eating out. And suddenly I was like, there's something in this. And I came back and I started the spinach smoothies and everything again as soon as I came back and it all came flooding back. And so what I'd essentially done is I'd put myself on an elimination diet, not completely, and the symptoms got better. And then I poured it back in and the symptoms came back. The other symptoms that you can get, so rashes and skin things and eczema are one of the things, but we know it can upset your gut. So diarrhea, bloating, constipation, wind, heartburn. Now my gut can go up and down and I didn't realize that actually some of this was due to histamine intolerance, not just my post-bowel cancer surgery bowel. Wow. This Mm. was the histamine. And yet my husband and I would struggle to manage it some days and we couldn't work it out. But now I know why. It can cause runny nose, headaches, fatigue, joint pains, dizziness, painful periods. It can worsen asthma. And what my mum used to get after a glass of red wine, because that's high histamine, she'd get something called quinkies edema. And and that is a particular type of swelling around the eye sockets that you get in um, some reactions. And her face would swell slightly. And this was all the histamine. And so the treatment of this condition is obviously elimination diet. But you obviously, there's a lot of things in there that I want to eat that are healthy and are good for my gut health. And I felt like I was excluding a whole host of things now that I just didn't want to exclude, you know, avocados, mushrooms, kiwi, papaya, bananas, all these things gone. Okay, so this for you has started before your cancer diagnosis, before your treatment and before you No, it started started October 21. And this was part of the perimenopause building up or part of part of the the perimenopause that I've experienced I think since treatment finished but I had not gone on to HRT because things Mm. weren't severe enough if you like to get to that point. What's so difficult with this is that people are perhaps listening to this after a bowel cancer diagnosis or any other cancer diagnosis and they would have had treatment and then we're adding all these amazing gut-friendly foods like you just mentioned, the kefir and the crowds and we listen to amazing experts like we've had on the podcast and and we hear so much about gut health and then our bowels change slightly and we might have itchiness and rashes and we think it's probably to do with menopause, but actually it's to do with perhaps an antihistamine or there is a possibility it could be a, an increased antihistamine sort of intolerance. How can you test for it? Yeah, so that's the thing. So histamine intolerance, it literally is uh, a diagnosis of exclusion. So firstly, if you've got any of those symptoms, you need to see your GP if they're persistent because I need to exclude a whole host of other things, including perimenopause and menopause, and that might be in my differential. Once we've excluded everything, the thing that you could try is an elimination diet. One of the telltale things about histamine intolerance is that it often gets worse with HRT, and I'll explain why. 
When you go through the perimenopause, your estrogen levels are erratic, aren't they? They can peak, they can trough. And actually, histamine levels increase when your estrogen levels increase. So when you've got these peaks in perimenopause sometimes, yeah. that increases your histamine, which then stimulates the histamine, stimulates your ovaries to produce more estrogen. And so you get this circle round and round and round. And estrogen also stops that enzyme. It can stop that enzyme working that I was talking about earlier that breaks down histamine. So you can gradually get this, these feelings and symptoms again. Most people, if you start them on HRT, within three to six months, usually improve their symptoms. We tinker with the dose. We find the right, right HRT. Most of my women are really happy with it if it's, if it's menopause or perimenopause driven. If you've got histamine intolerance, your symptoms will get worse because you're giving more estrogen. Right. So then that leaves the question, which I had, what do I do now? Because I yeah. then was getting worse thing, migraines, joint aches, feeling blur, feeling down, lost my mojo. What do I do then? And so I've been living with histamine tolerance since October 21. And I still take regular antihistamines that are prescribed. Um, and I take one or two a day, depending on how difficult it is. I've had to, inc- I've, I'm very much one, even post-bowel surgery, to try and eat a varied diet, even though I know some things can upset the balance. I think it's really important. And if you can, then that's what I do. And so I think, I know I won't, I'll avoid my spinach smoothies now, unfortunately, <laughs> because that, that literally the next day drives a huge response. But I've amended things. I've changed my diet, but I will eat most things. And antihistamines, we know that the vitamin C is actually a natural antihistamine. So at low dose, 250 milligrams, three or four times a day, that can help. Again, can cause loose stools. There's actually a food supplement of that enzyme I mentioned that we lose, the DAO, the diamine oxidase. The problem is, is it's expensive and you have to take it before every meal. So I got a box of it, but I use it for special occasions. So if I know I'm going to something where I can't, you know, sort of, I know it's going to be indulgent and I know something's going to spark me off, I will take one. And avoiding stress. And then once you've got your histamine sort of under control in terms of its manageable, then you can gradually increase HRT. And I literally started with half a squirt. And I don't, you know, and, and that to me has, has, has helped because as well as the peaks of estrogen that you get with perimenopause, I also get the absolute dips yeah. and then I've got hormones all over the place. Yeah. So I'm just trying it, to keep on an even keel. If anyone is listening to this and thinking, oh my gosh, I've um, included all these foods and I'm trying to have a varied diet because I know it's important to add as l- many ingredients as possible. And they're also thinking, oh, maybe I've got a bit of histamine intolerance. Yes, we go to the GP to make sure we eliminate other things. Where can we start? Like what would be, is there a resource that we think I'd start at home to do a little bit of research or to sort of have a little dig or... Absolutely. So if you look histamine, hist, up histamine intolerance food sheet or diet sheet, and you can keep a food diary, you can then keep the food diary and you can then work out Brilliant. what your specific triggers are. Because spinach affects me really badly, but the next person with histamine intolerance, it might not affect them so badly. And everyone's severity is very varying. So it might not mean like I can still eat most things. Most days I've got a little bit of an itch here or there. I've got little bits of rash, but it's manageable. Um, And what we can do is we can attach a resource to the podcast as well um, so that people can look for more information. 
That sounds great. And actually, the more we can learn about which foods are good for us in this particular moment or in this particular phase of our lives, the better, because our bodies change, we change. We shouldn't be eating the same all of our lives, right? Um, It's good to adapt. Balance Balance is key. But this is a condition that I think there are a few people out there that do experience that don't get better on HRT. And actually, this is the, one of the questions we should be asking. A, have we got the diagnosis right? Is there another medical diagnosis? Is there a psychological diagnosis? Or is it something like histamine intolerance with this other cacophony of symptoms? Yeah, it's fascinating. And before we end this podcast, because this has been really fascinating and we haven't spoken about it before, how did what helped you to move on? or to become the survivor and the thriver since all of your treatment? Do you know what? The thing that's got me through is writing. I am, I've never been a writer before this, but um, I wrote my way through treatment and I wrote on my really dark days and then I shared it on obviously Instagram through my blog. And then through that, I realized that people actually wanted to hear that. I didn't know who would want to hear it. Why would you want to hear about someone's really low times and then with the low times came some highs and then I started sharing those as well and then you know building a community and then having a community on social media and meeting people like yourselves I mean I've just met some extraordinary people through social media and actually turning this negative into a positive has really helped me and that's always what we wanted to do my husband and I from day dot because we knew we had a unique platform we knew we were doctors that had gone through this process and actually you know the I can be a doctor in my day job but the other job that I have a real passion for is raising awareness and that's where I channel my energy and that's how I stop thinking negatively about cancer because therefore I can channel my energy into health education into working with charities into making a difference into going onto tv and being a tv doctor but talking about things that are important and breaking taboos and stigmas and making change and you know, the most recent thing, and I mentioned earlier was, you know, writing this book, I've written a book this year that I feel quite emotional talking about it, but it's been another part of my healing process. You know, I've had a lot of therapy. And I thought, you know, I'm good, you know, I can manage most days. But actually writing this book unraveled, it unraveled a lot. I talk about bowel cancer and I was asked to write initially a book about an A to Z of bowel cancer if you like and I was like well I can do that but maybe we'll get some experience of others who've lived through it and maybe my experience and put that all in a book and actually do you know what's what's not been written about is life after cancer and the menopause and actually this bowel dysfunction I describe and actually the mental health stuff and all the stuff that you know, no one was there to hold my hand and I relied on community for this and I did all my digging. So that's what I've done. And it's coming out on the 20th of January, 2023. And then in hard, you know, actually physicality on the 30th of March. And I'm really, I'm really nervous, but I'm really proud of it. And I just hope if it can help one person, you know, that that will be amazing. Um, It's called Everything You'd Hoped You Never Need to Know About Bowel Cancer. And it's basically a personal story about a doctor a patient which is me and about how you navigate through the shit essentially and life beyond so that's how I try and live I try and throw myself into other things because that's all I can do and you have such lovely energy in telling us your story and and also really brilliant in how you explain things and make them sound just understandable as a doctor that's quite a difficult thing sometimes it is isn't it and you do really well (laughs) I can't wait to read the book. When is it out, did you say? 
Uh, it's out on pre-order 20th of January, and then um, it will be released with Bowel Cancer Awareness Month. So the end of, end of March and April is Bowel Cancer Awareness Month. So hopefully we'll be talking lots about bowel cancer then too. Yeah. And thank you also to talk about the histamine intolerance, because it's for sure one of those very quiet and often unspoken symptom side effects that people don't know they're even dealing with. So it's so important to shine light on it. I completely agree. And what's interesting is that the gut symptoms with histamine intolerance, you can also get the gut symptoms with menopause as well. And that's, you know, people don't often make that link. So I'm not saying that just because of you're that age, your gut symptom, your change in bowel habit is due to menopause. I'm saying you need to get it checked, but it can be one of the differentials. We obviously need to exclude things like bowel cancer and more serious things, but it's in that differential. So people often miss that one. So don't forget about it. Yeah, thank you so much. And good luck with the book launch thank and you. everything else you're planning. Oh, it's so and nice to speak to you. Thank you. Great to chat. And hopefully we'll have you back on with something else that is super enlightening. <laughs> Lovely. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, Anisha had such lovely energy and fascinating insight. And I really hope you enjoyed the conversation with her. Histamine intolerance is surely something that doesn't come up loads in many conversations around menopause and let alone in conversations around menopause and cancer. And so I hope this has been an interesting starting point for you should you want to explore this even further. I'm going to link some of the resources Anisha mentions into the show notes of the podcast, along with a link to her book, which I'm sure is going to be super, super helpful, especially for those who've been diagnosed with bowel cancer. And apart from that, I really want all of us to hold on to the fact that things take time. Things take time for us to notice, for us to then make sense of, and then to find help and maybe solutions outside of ourselves. Because if it took Anisha and her husband, who are both so expertly medically trained, a real long time to understand that she was really struggling with her symptoms of the menopause after all of the treatment she underwent, then of course it's going to take us, who are perhaps just patients without the medical knowledge, even, even longer. And if anything, and we all walk away with a little bit more patience and acknowledgement that things take time from this episode, then I think we've all gained an awful lot. And with that, I want to close today's episode and wishing you all the best, a good Wednesday. If you can, subscribe to the show and rate the show. And if you can be bothered, and if you know how to do it, review the show. So go down to where you find the five stars, click on them, and then try and leave a review because I really, really, really treasure it so much when I read what brings you joy and what you take away from this podcast, because it really helps me to find more podcast guests that I think then will resonate with you. And I can bring you the experts that you all want and need to perhaps listen to. So thank you for that, because it's a real good way for us to communicate and engage with one another over the content I release every single week here. And with that, I want to thank everyone that has already rated and reviewed the podcast. Thank you so much. And I'm really, really grateful for our little but mighty community. Lots of love. <laughs>